we've been going through the last, you know, the last couple of weeks, we've been going through a series on the season of building, which is what we're going through right now. And the first week we talked about the necessity. It is the moment. It is the time to build. That is our season right now. Whereas in the last year, it's been a season mostly of healing, of catching our breath, of, of taking inventory, um, of reexamining, of coming before the Lord once again. Um, now we're shifting into a season now of building. If we're going to be moving forward, it has to be very intentionally. It has to be as a community all together with one heart. Um, and so we've been talking about that for the last few weeks. The first week it was kind of this, and it's not going to help us build. Now's the time to build. This is the task that is ahead for us. And it's not going to happen if one or two people are volunteering for this, or if only the staff or only the pastors or only the elders are out there doing the labor. It's going to take an entire community to actually build this house and build this church. Um, the second week we talked about how to build, like the heart behind it, why build. Um, and it was actually more of a message on how not to build. We talked about the Tower of Babel last week. And so this week, we're actually going to be talk, going back to the book of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want us to open up to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is after, I don't know how, how to best tell you. It's before Esther, after Ezra. Does that help? I don't know. <laughs> it's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, maybe. Yeah, so we're opening up to Nehemiah. And um, before we go into the message, let me just pray for us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. I pray, Father, that there will be a newness in the way that we receive this. There will be a new open-heartedness. There will be a new tenderness, a new softness towards your word and towards your presence. If we've heard this over and over again, if we've read this over and over again, and if we've hardened our hearts to your word, I pray, God, that you, in your mercy and in your grace, Lord, you would soften our hearts once again, that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you're doing right now, what you're speaking right now. We pray, Father, that your word would have that piercing quality to it where it doesn't just wash over us, it doesn't gloss over us, but it pierces our hearts and it has deep and profound ramifications in our lives. I pray, Father, that that would be the transforming power of your word in our lives, that we'd be people that are marked by, changed by, challenged by your word. We thank you, Father, for these things. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are in part three, this last part of uh, the sermon series, um, the season to build. And this is one of, this is kind of my Israel nerdiness coming out for a little bit. Um, this is a postcard that I actually found while I was uh, traveling in Israel. And this is really cool because it looks nothing like it does today. This is actually a picture that was taken of the Temple Mount in the beginning of the 20th century. And I felt like it was so cool to see what it looked like without all the modern buildings, without all the, all the additions and all the different things where it was... Um, a lot more barren and it was kind of in construction and it kind of gave me almost like a visual of what it looks like when something is in the process of being built where you look at it and you're like that's not much 
Like all I see is a mosque in the middle and, you know, a lot of empty land all around. And that's probably the wall. And there's all these different buildings that are right up against the wall. And it doesn't look like very much, but this is what things look like when they are in the making, when they are in the building. And often we tend to look at it and kind of underestimate what it is that being, that is being built. And in the same way, um, often when we are in the middle of building something, the middle of, uh, a project in the middle of a process, we tend to, you know, we tend to look at it and maybe even be discouraged by where things are at in the middle. And we tend to get impatient about, can we just get there? Can we just get to the, to the destination? And perhaps the challenge for us is to actually be able to worship God in the middle of the process. When things are unfinished, when there's still a an amount, like a certain level of uncertainty when all, you know, your T's aren't crossed, your I's aren't dotted and things are still up in the air. In that moment, we get to choose, are we still going to worship God or not? And that's one of the unique opportunities that we have during this season to completely give him our worship, even when things are in progress, even when things are under construction in the middle of that, we still get to worship God. So as we're looking into the book of Nehemiah, the first thing that I, uh, I'm going to just talk about three different kind of like overall general steps that Nehemiah and the Israelites go through as they're rebuilding the city of God, the Jerusalem and the temple as well. Um, if we look, if you're looking at your Bible, hopefully you have a physical Bible as well. And you just gloss over the first chapter. There is no building there. No one's building nothing. You know, it's just Nehemiah talking. Right. And you're like come on, man. Like there's a lot to do. Are you not, do you not feel the urgency of the task and what's taking so long? And it's an entire chapter of Nehemiah, basically just praying to God, praying to God. And that's where it all begins. So Nehemiah at this point, he was actually something that is called a cupbearer to the king. And he was under um, the empire, the Persian empire. And so he was a cupbearer to the king. It's a position. It doesn't sound very glamorous, right? You're bearing a cup, but it's actually a position of really high trust, almost like thinking like it's, it's the, the person of most trust to the king. They were always within, you know, close distance, close proximity to the king. And their main role was to actually eat and drink everything that would go into the king's lips to make sure that he wouldn't get poisoned. So a cupbearer was unfortunately, you know, substitutable. <laughs> you can replace them, right? But the king wasn't. And so they would always have someone that they, they would trust with their lives. They are literally entrusting their lives to the cupbearer. And that was who Nehemiah was. It starts off uh, by saying that in the month of Kislev, and this is important later on, someone talks to Nehemiah about the state of the city of Jerusalem. And they say those are, who, are, who have survived and are, are in exile are back in the province and there's great trouble and disgrace and the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And then you look in verse four, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Weeping is not a word that we actually use very much in modern days, but it's actually the equivalent of saying ugly crying. 
Like, it's not like a, a graceful tear rolling down your cheek. It's like, uh, like, like heaving and like snotting and like, it just looks really, really ugly. Um, so it's not like a polite, you know, like, oh, I'm feeling a little bit emotional, but he is weeping for the state of the city of Jerusalem. And he sits before the Lord and he mourns and he fasts and he prays before the God of heaven. So the first thing that Nehemiah actually does before ever picking up a tool to build, before ever laying out blueprints, before ever delegating anything, the first thing that he actually does is he gets a burden in the place of prayer. As soon as he hears the news, he goes into the place of prayer, not as last resort, not like I've tried everything and now I have nothing to do but to pray, not as last resort, but actually as first resort. That is his first means, uh, his first way of engaging with this news. He has to, it's almost like by instinct, he has to go into the place of prayer. And then you read the, the prayer that he prays and it is not. Uh, just a, a, a prayer that says, please, God, help us. It starts out with repentance. It starts out with repentance. If you go down to uh, the second half of verse six, he says, I confess the sins. We Israelites, not them Israelites. He says, we Israelites, including myself and my father's house have committed against you. And he starts off from the place of repenting and then recommitting to God. Now, we said that this was at the, at the beginning of the month of Kislev. And from the month of Kislev, this is uh, the name of a month uh, in the Jewish calendar, all the way to the month of Nisan, when it actually something starts to happen, when God actually answers his prayers and he opens up a door of provision. It's a period of four months, a period of four months where he's just fasting and praying. I don't know if you've ever been in this kind of situation when there's a very clear need and a call to pray. And you pour out your heart before the Lord. Like you are in that weeping mode. You're fasting, you're praying, you're weeping before him. You don't know what else to do. And that is the first place that you go to. And you feel God's heart for it. And you feel the urgency and the call on your life to contend for it. And it feels like nothing's happening. It feels like, God, like, where are you? That's first week, you know, second week, third week, fourth week all the way to four months. And you're like, I, I thought you answer prayers, God, you know, what, what happened? And it's four months of what looks like silence, what looks like an unanswered prayer. But Nehemiah knows this one thing that if God doesn't move, nothing's going to happen. No matter how hard he tries, no matter what doors he knocks on, if God doesn't intervene, nothing's going to happen. He knows that without the prayers, the divine provision will not come. And so he comes into the place of prayer and he doesn't talk to the king. He doesn't go ahead and plan different things. What he does is he just goes into the place of prayer and he trusts even if I don't believe, even if I don't feel like God is listening, even if I don't see God answering my prayers, I'm going to believe that he's still listening. I'm going to believe that all these prayers that I'm praying right now, it's not just up to thin air, but it's actually reaching God. And then we see surely enough four months after that divine open door comes where the king who has, who owes him nothing. He's just a cupbearer who owes him nothing. Basically asks him the question, what can I do for you? 
you look really sad. You look really burdened. What can I do for you? And this opens up divine provision for God to answer that very same prayer that he had prayed four months ago. It wasn't just, you know, like, let me hear you out and let me feel empathy for you. But this moment actually released permission to go back and rebuild the the walls of Jerusalem. It also released a commissioning. So he sent him back for that particular task. And it also released divine uh, resources. So he actually got everything that he needed to complete the task. And this would never have happened if it hadn't started in the place of prayer. And then the second part that happens following that is delegation and ownership. So it wasn't enough just for one man to get burdened in the place of prayer and have a game plan and go out, you know, with all this excitement and all this vision. But he knew that he could not do this alone. And if you look in chapter 3, all of chapter 3, even if you've seen it before, if I'm honest, it's a very boring chapter to go through, right? Because all these names of all these people that really don't matter to you doing all these seemingly menial things and it's like name after name after name after name and the son of so-and-so and the family of so-and-so they did the so-and-so wall and they did the so-and-so fixings and um it's it's an inventory basically of who is partaking in this task so all of chapter three basically is the delegation and there's a sense of ownership people from every background Every background, every training, and every skill set. So we have goldsmiths and Levites and merchants and financiers and all these different people who are actually partaking in this. It lists out all of those who are involved in the work name by name and task by task, even if it feels like it's unnecessary detail. The Bible doesn't list out anything that is unnecessary. This is still just as inspired word of God by the Holy Spirit as any other chapter in the Bible is. And so what this communicates to me is every person that was given a task that was delegated something, um, they all count. They all matter. They're all seen before the Lord and their names are written here. So every person doesn't matter how much they were doing, how little they were doing, they were given a task and there was a, a level of ownership as well. There's certain people that are stationed in a certain gate. You are going to be the one, you and your company are going to be the ones who are going to be rebuilding this particular gate. And if enemies come along this side, then you are going to be responsible to protect this gate as well. There are very particular things that were commissioned to different people. Now, this is a challenge for us as we think about this idea of this is a ginormous task and then certain people are delegated these seemingly small tasks. This is a question that we must ask ourselves. How often do we disqualify ourselves from something that God has actually equipped us to do? So imagine I'm a goldsmith back in the day and I'm like, I have nothing to do with this wall. Like I am trained um, in, in goldsmith thing. I don't know if that's a word, goldsmith um, Huh? Smithing. It's a word. Um, smithing. Anyway, uh, working with gold, that's, that's what I'm qualified at. Um, and so this has nothing to do with me. And the Bible actually says, no, no, you have a role. You have a role. You have a task within the larger project. 
And often when, when we see a big task and we don't see exactly where we fit into this, we're like, that has nothing to do with me. You know, that has nothing to do. God didn't, apparently God didn't prepare me for this particular task, but this is a challenge to all of us. Whatever gifting God has given you, whatever skill set, whatever insight, whatever position it is that God has given you, you have a role to play in God's larger plan. You have, you have a task ahead for you. Even if you feel like, what do I have to bring to the table? What do I have to contribute? Like, I, I, I'm not experienced or I'm not whatever. And I'm not spiritual enough. I and mean, I'm not mature enough. We tend to give this whole list of reasons why we're disqualified from the work. When perhaps God is saying like, actually, what well, we need exactly that. We need a goldsmith right now. We need exactly that. We need a merchant right now. We need somebody who's, who actually has farming skills or you know, who was in the military before. And there's a particular role and a particular task for every person when it comes to bringing together and accomplishing this larger project. And so the step, the second step that Nehemiah takes in the building of the walls of Jerusalem is both delegation and ownership. He's not going to do it by himself, but it's going to be a particular challenge and a particular entrusting to people that he's going, that is going to bring together uh, this project. And finally, this is what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. This is the actual building and protecting work. And so the building commences during this time after he has been praying for four months after the resources and the commissioning and all those things have happened, the delegation, the ownership has happened. And now we are in the building and protecting stage. And it is not an abstract, like let me mentally and morally support you from all the way back here. It is actual work. It is real work. You have to pick up a hammer. You have to stone. You have to use stonemason tools, I guess. Stonemason tools. You have to break rock. You have to craft doors. You have to design. You have to engineer. It takes actual work. It's not just a mental ascent. Like you go, you go, bro. Like I'm I'm with you, you know, and I'm sitting back there, but it's actually, I'm going to go with you and I'm actually going to do real work. And as soon as they start building, this is when the tax begin. So two weeks ago, we talked about the tax in chapter four, and it's basically enemy saying, you're not enough. You are too weak. The damage is permanent. There's nothing you can do about this. It is going to take way too long. It's going to take too many resources. I don't think you're going to be able to make it. And that's the way that the enemy intimidates them from actually um, kind of giving up this assignment even before it begins. But now we see round two of the attacks hurled at their building enterprise. And this happens in Nehemiah chapter six. So if we looked through uh, chapter six, first it starts in verses two. And three, the first attack from the enemy in this round two, it is distraction. So the en- and Nehemiah's enemies, they try to draw him away by sending him this message. They say, come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Om. He's of harming him. And so this is Nehemiah's response. He's straight up gangster. He says, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? He's saying, God has given me a task and there's nothing that's going to derail me from this. Even the things that seemingly are urgent, even the things that seemingly are time sensitive. He has the sense of this is what God has called me to do. This is the timing in which he's called me to do it. And there's nothing that is going to derail me from this assignment. 
he knows in his mind that they're not only trying to harm him, but they're actually trying to take him away from the very task that he's called to do at that time. And so if we were to kind of summarize uh, that response from Nehemiah to the, the distraction that the enemy was bringing, it is to remain focused and to also remain watchful. So he needed to remain focused on the task and watchful against attacks. He can't just be so focused in the task and oblivious to attacks. He actually has to be both focused and watchful at the same time. Now, I wish it ended there, but then we see a couple of verses later, then the enemies come to him with lies. There's, there's an open letter that fabricates rumors that accuse him of planning a rebellion. So this is an open letter that is being distributed all around that uh, geographical area. And it's saying, Nehemiah is actually not trying to build a wall. He's actually trying to become a king. So this is not a building thing. This is actually him trying to um, get into a place of power. And not just that, there are people who are appointed prophets, appointed prophets, and they would back him up. They would back up that accusation. And so they're basically saying he's in it for the personal fame and glory. And his enemies ask him to meet in order to disprove these lies. So the temptation for Nehemiah at this point is, okay, maybe I need to pause this in order to defend my name. Maybe I need to pause this, like leave it alone for a little bit in order for me to clear up my name because all these lies are being spread out around uh, about me. And so the temptation is for him to leave his task in order to defend himself. But this is what, again, once again, very gangster. He says, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your own head. Wow. All right. So this is basically what he's doing. He's just calling out the lie. And he remains grounded in the truth. He discerns what is true and what is not. And so he, it requires discernment. It's not just a blind like whatever. I don't really believe you. It was actually, I don't think that's what's happening. Actually, I see what's really happening. And I have that kind of discernment, that kind of sobriety. Nine, they say, um, the third attack is that the enemies in, in chapter six, verse nine, they say the Israelites hands are going to get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. So they're basically trying to tire them out. But his response again It is, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So his response to a weakening, perhaps it's day 10 of building up, you know, walls that they haven't been trained to build. Um, At this point, they're feeling, they're feeling the, the, how taxing this actual task is. And he resorts to prayer once again. This assignment itself, it was commissioned in prayer It was sustained through prayer, and it was also completed through prayer. So prayer is what runs all throughout this entire enterprise. His approach to this is be in prayer. When you feel weak, you need to pray. When you feel tired, you need to pray. When you feel distracted, you need to pray. When you're discouraged, you need to pray. When you're confused, you need to pray, and God will answer. It is to remain in the place of prayer. And then finally... In verse 10, we see straight up intimidation. There's people that Nehemiah trusted and he goes to them and they prophesy to him. Your enemies are actually coming to kill you. You better 
go into hiding. You better run into the temple, lock those doors, and never come out until the attack is over, until um, the threat is over. You better leave your work, go into hiding, and stay safe there. But in verse 11, we see Nehemiah, he discerned that they had actually been paid by enemies to give a false prophecy. And he said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. And so his response was discernment of the source of intimidation and refusal to go into hiding. He was filled with faith. He said, I heard God's charge. I saw his provision. I will not back down from the mission given to me. I refuse to give room for intimidation and doubt. I will draw a line in the sand. I will stand my ground. I will finish what he's, he's given me grace to do. That is his stance all throughout these attacks. And this is a, this is a challenge for all of us, isn't it? When we finally get to the place of obstacles and like, ah, man, I was so excited about this thing that God called me to do. And man, I was just so ready and just like hyped up. And then the first obstacle comes and you're like, okay, okay, we can handle this. Second obstacle comes and you're like, ah, okay, it's going to look harder. Third obstacle comes, fourth obstacle comes. And somewhere along the way, you're like, is it ever going to (laughs) end? Like, is it ever going to end? Is there ever going to be a magical moment when all of this is going to end? But he refuses to be intimidated into the place of doubt. He refuses to, to be intimidated and backed up into that place of, man, is God actually going to answer? He, he consistently asks to be filled with faith. And this is a challenge for all of us to remain in that place. Often, it's not just us. Often, we actually need people around us to remind us of this as well. Like, it's not just, man, I'm going to stay in the place of faith. I'm going to stay in the place of faith. We need brothers and sisters alongside us who are like, like don't you remember what God said to you? Don't you remember how, how God spoke to you two months ago? Don't you remember that this is what you really were praying into and God, like you wanted God to call you into this? Uh, you need to be reminded over and over again to not yield to fear, but to be filled with faith. And so this is kind of he, how, in summary, how he goes about it. He remains focused and watchful. He remains uh, in a place of discernment. And he remains in a place of prayer. And he is filled with faith. This is how this whole project went through. And then we finally see a few verses later, the magical moment. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elo in 52 days. Think about it. 52 days it took to actually build this wall. How long was he in prayer? Four months, right? It actually took long the work and to it. If you were to look at it, that was the bulk of the work. The four months of prayer was the bulk of the work. And then once that was done, the rest of it just unfolded in the span of 52 days. It took longer to pray for the open door than for the actual work. And doesn't that say something? Now, sometimes we feel like the bulk of the work is is the actual where I am laboring. But we never think about the place of prayer and how that is actually perhaps the bulk of the work. That is when God is working. That is when God is answering. God is providing. God is opening up doors. That says something. And the wall was completed in the span of 52 days. And not just that, when all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their self 
self-confidence. And they lost their self-confidence not because they realized that, wow, these Israelites are actually a force to be reckoned with. They didn't think that, oh, it's because it's a great nation or a great workforce or a great strategy, but because they had a great God. It wasn't, wow, look at those Israelites. It was, wow, look at the God of the Israelites. And we know this because it ends this way, because they realize that this work had been done with the help of our God. It was done with the help of our God. At the end of the day, shouldn't that be what people see? Right? At the end of the day, shouldn't that be what communicates the most? People who support you will praise God. People who oppose you will fear God. And the name of Yahweh, the name of God, is exalted throughout this labor. Now, I wish I could say that there was, you know, and they lived happily ever after, and that is not the way that it ends. Did they attack seas? No, they actually didn't. Did they live happily ever after? No, they actually didn't. The journey continues. The falling into sin continues, but also the needing God's grace, the calling upon God, it continues. And that is our journey when it comes down to it. It is a never-ending dependency on God. It is a needing to believe in God's promises over and over and over again. It is needing to fight through obstacles, pray through obstacles over and over and over again. And never once not needing God's grace. Never once reaching that point where, okay, I think I'm good. I don't need God anymore. I think I'm set. Thanks, God. Good luck. You know, it's not. Isn't that kind of sometimes how we Um, approach prayer. Sometimes we approach prayer this way. I'm going to pray so that God answers and then I don't have to pray. Right? It's like you want to pray so that you don't have to pray anymore. But that's not the way it it looks like here in Nehemiah. That's not the way it looks like in any um, of these people in the Bible. It is you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and you never stop praying. This is what carries you through The project, this is what carries you through your life. This is what carries you through the attacks. This is what carries you through the waiting, the in the process, under construction moments. It is prayer. Now, I have, um, I have, you know, we have a church office and I have a little cubicle in the church office. And I actually have two postcards that are taped up on my cubicle. Um, One of them is the one that I already talked about. um, That is of the temple mount and it just reminds me it kind of reminds me every time that this is what it's about it's not it's not just the building itself but what it represents it's coming before the lord coming before his presence communion with god that place where heaven meets earth that place where man meets with god and that's what that's what all it is about there's one more postcard that i have on there and it's actually this one it's a postcard picked up in bethlehem And this is a reason why I have it there. And this is what it reminds me of a few years back. And I might be butchering this, uh, but New Philadelphia as a church, we received a particular prophetic word. Um, And it was um, this minister that came through and he was ministering to, um, you know, uh, this young group of people. um, And he said, there's something very particular about this church. Like, it's not like a mega church. It's not super big or anything like that. And it's not like super rich either. Um, But there's just something really special about this community. Like, I can't exactly put my finger on it. And this is the way that he worded it. It's it's like God, God deciding to come down 
into a humble manger. It's like God choosing to reside in a very humble and seemingly unimpressive place where you would least expect to find God, you would least expect to, to see God's manifest glory in. And he was saying, Nephili, it's, it's kind of like a Bethlehem. It's, it's, like a, it's, it's like a manger where God just sovereignly, not because of any grand name or any grand structure or any whatever, but it's a humble place where God is welcomed, a humble place that receives him with doors wide open. And that is where he chooses to reside. And that is, I believe, such a beautiful picture of what this church is called to be. I don't know if we'll ever be, like, super huge and super rich and whatever. But one thing that I sure hope we never lose is that openness to receive God. Like, no matter what things look like, we're going to host God here. This is going to be God's dwelling place. He's going to reside here. He's not just going to come for a visit once in a while. This is going to be his dwelling place. We want him to feel at home here. And this is going to be like a manger, like a Bethlehem. I'm going to end with this. In the book of Acts, we actually see an incredible feat happen unfolding throughout the chapters. This is when Jesus has already, you know, ascended into heaven. And the church begins to explode, not by the intellectual elite, not by the powerful and the rich, but actually by young, unexperienced fishermen and tax collectors and sinners. We see the church exploding across the nations through very humble people. And these are people who go against the grain. They challenge rulers and officials. They stump intellectuals. They become a force to be reckoned with. And this is what people who observe him, uh, observe them say. And this is when Peter and John were imprisoned. Can we have the second to last slide? Acts 4, verse 13. This is what the, the religious elite of that day, this is what they said when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This was the one thing that set them apart. It wasn't, hey, they went to the right seminary and like they read all the right books and they attended that conference and then they would. It wasn't that. It's the one thing that set them apart is they've, they've actually been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. So regardless of how big the task or how unqualified you feel, hopefully this brings you a lot of hope. This is the one thing that is needed for God to move, just for us to be with him. This courage, the courage that this task requires, it will not come from just positive thinking or blind zeal, but simply by being with Jesus. And that's who we've been called to be. We are, in many respects, a very humble church. Um, we're not necessarily like super well-educated or super whatever, or we don't have all these qualifications or we don't have all these different particular, um, you know, programs and all these things. But man, we love being with Jesus. We love his presence. We love his word. We love his people. And that's enough. And I believe that God's going to take that and he's going to do something really beautiful with it. Um, I talked to different people about our church and even 
throughout the last year, I talked to different people who are in the in, in ministry um, about what we're going through as a church and what we went through in the last year. And, you know, I was maybe just hoping for like, oh, they're there, you know, good luck with that. Or I'll pray for you. I was hoping for something like that. But I have these some crazy friends, right? Some crazy friends. This is what they said. Like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, that's amazing. Don't you guys realize that you've been given an opportunity of a lifetime? Like, you guys get to start afresh. You guys get to dream of what, what, what kind of church you actually want to become. You guys get to look at one another and learn to love one another. And we get to build a house together. We get to, we get to do that together. And I was like, well, easy for you to say, right? It's actually a lot of hard work. And, and you know, there's a lot of, you know, things that happen behind the scene that, that need to happen. And they're saying like, yeah, yeah. But regardless, you guys have so many things going for you. And the people that you have there, they sound amazing. Like, I'm sure there's struggles. I'm sure there's things that you need to walk out. I'm sure there's things that you need to implement and all of that. But, man, you guys are in an incredible place. You guys are at the crossroads, and you get to decide what kind of church you want to become. And you guys get to dream together. You guys get to dream together as a community what kind of church you want to become that will honor God and that will host his presence. And so that helps going to frame all of this in a very different light, right? It's not mentality. Woe is me. When are we going to get out of We don't have this and we don't have that. It's not a mentality of lack and like why God and when God. It's more of a, man, we actually have this incredible window of opportunity and God is giving us mercy, grace, provision, people, excitement, There's so much that is happening right now that often we become blind to because we begin to focus on things that we are lacking. And so hopefully this gives you a bit of encouragement. This is what God is doing. These are all different things that God has provided. And I am sure that God is up to something really good. I hope so. And God is building for himself a church that really blesses him, that, that reflects his character, and that welcomes him as a dwelling place. Amen? Amen.